All right, if you found Matthew 23, I'll ask you to stand, and you can follow along as I read, starting in verse 32 to the end of the chapter. Fill ye up, then, the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Berechias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, where I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We look forward to that return. Help as I preach, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The final woe in our eight woes comes as a prophecy. Jesus prophesies how the Pharisees will fill to the brim the cup of their fathers. And this will bring about a day of reckoning. And that's the title for this sermon. Sometimes I get to the end of preparing the sermon and I think think the title is a day of reckoning. It's It's something that kind of grabbed hold of me, and I would like to introduce that phrase to you, a phrase that seems to capture the essence of the the sermon and the text. A day of reckoning. If someone talks about the day of reckoning, they mean a day or time in the future when people will be forced to deal with an unpleasant situation which they have avoided until now. That's a day reckoning. As Jesus brings this sermon to climax, he prophesies about the sure coming of a day of reckoning. For these scribes and Pharisees, this city and this temple. But let's stop and consider for a moment the word reckoning. The use there is an archaic usage where reckoning means the settlement of an account. I think the question we ought to consider as we approach a day of reckoning is, can you really get away with anything? Does anybody really get away with anything? Intellectually, and I think biblically we know, the answer, no. No one gets away with anything. Yet... There's something endemic in our flesh that deceives us or lulls us into thinking that we might get away with something. As I was thinking of this, 
and I'll have you turn there, I thought of Exodus chapter 2, because it, 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 it reveals, I think, how people are when it comes to getting away with something. Here we have the story of Moses, who sees one of his brethren being smitten by an Egyptian. And as the thought enters his mind that he might do something about this, namely, smite the Egyptian, look at how he goes about it, because there is a force of conscience in our mind that says, this is wrong. Not only that, it's a crime. So what does he do? Verse 12. And he looked this way and that way. When he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. That's a very fleshly way. He thought he could get away with it. He thought he could avoid prosecution. He thought he could escape punishment. He looked this way and that, and he saw no man. And so he did it. And then he hid the body in the sand. But if you read on, it says the next day, or in two days, I think it's the day after the first, it was known among all the people what he had done. So, but there's an endemic you know, thought that we have where we think, I might get away with it. I think about Cain, you know, when confronted by God himself, he answers, I don't know. That was his literal answer. I don't know. And God says, his blood crieth unto me from the ground. So just because you buried the evidence, just because you buried the body, you're not going to get away with it. In this generation, Jesus is saying, you think you can escape? You think you can, as the word means, avoid damnation? No. But why is it, you know, that we think this way? Well, I think it's, it's mainly because of our, um, that we're in time, and we think that because the, that we don't get in trouble right away, that we're going to possibly, might, get away with something. But God keeps accurate records. When I think about the books being opened at the great white throne, it says, and the books were opened, and every man is judged according to his works, to their works. I, I, I know the Bible will be there. I mean, that's the law of God. But, but there seems like there's another book. And when I think about it, I think about accounting. And when I worked in that world of business, uh, the accountant's book has a straight line down the middle. And on the right side, you have uh, debits. And left, you have credits. And you learn the books have to balance. <laughs> they must balance. When I was uh, in engineering, there was a brief time where our group was moved next to the accounting group, and I had no knowledge of accounting, 
Engineers and accountants don't run in the same crowds. Our lives are very different. We both like numbers, but a different kind of numbers. And I noticed that accountants have their own way of doing things, their own lifestyle, their own um, rhythm. And what it is is that um, when the first day of the month comes, you know, you might be leaving work and thinking, eh, it's about 5.30, 6, I'm leaving. You notice they're all still there. And they're there till 7. They're there till 8. And the second day of the month, and the third day of the month, you think, that's, why are they staying late? You know, I stay late when I have extra work to do. But they all have extra work to do. What are they doing? They're closing the books. They, ha- they have to balance all the transactions And when they balance, third, maybe fourth business day of the month, they close the book. And it's done. And they tell you, I don't care if you bring a receipt. I don't care what, it's done. Those books are done, especially when it's the end of the year. They cannot be opened. They're balanced. And this is really what's happening before us today, is Jesus is saying, you're going to fill the side that ledger, if you will, of the debit side, you're filling it up, and you're going to keep filling it up. But there's a day coming, a day of reckoning, where your book is going to close, and there's no way to open it. That's what we're, we're, we're talking. And I, and I say this to you by way of warning, don't let the book close on you. Because your sins are all there trespasses and transgressions are written down on that side of the ledger, written and written and written and recorded. Just because you haven't faced judgment yet doesn't mean there's not a record that stands for every transgression, every sin that you've committed is recorded. And you might be lulled or self-deceived into thinking that, well, nothing's bad has happened to me Yet, don't deceive yourself. He that soweth unto the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. The only hope is, you know, we can't do anything on the credit side. Anything we try to do that's a credit isn't really. The only hope is for Jesus to essentially rip up our account and throw away our debits and credit to us his righteousness. If you haven't done that, don't let the books close. Because if they close, they don't open again. And when you die, it's appointed unto man once to die. And after this, a day of reckoning for you. There's no going back. There's no more transactions to do. So he says to them in verse 33, Ye serpents... Ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? You think you're going to avoid it? You're not. Yeah, just because it hasn't happened today doesn't mean it's not coming. And so he he talks about them as snakes. And I think that by calling them snakes, it's certainly a nod to the sort of vicious and, and subtle nature of the snake, the serpent. But I also see that Jesus is closing the book on them. The book that was opened by John the Baptist. And if you turn to Matthew 3, the beginning of the book, 
In verse 7, John opens with this very statement. John the Baptist preaching by the river. In Matthew 3, 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John the Baptist's illusion was someone who lived in the wilderness. I know that uh, Brother Daniel was able to, to, to mow the, the high grass up there, and I'm thankful for that. And I imagine there were some snakes in there. But, you know, having not mowed it, one other option is to burn it. And, I, and you can imagine being in a river place when the river flows, that the grass grows and the, and the brush gets high, and then it stops raining and the river bed dries, and now you have tinder. You have flammable material. And all it takes is, is a stray spark or a strike of lightning, and whoosh, the tall grass burns. And from that, you would see snakes slithering, and they don't move that fast, really, and, and in mass, slithering out as the fire is burning. But sadly, they're not going to make it. They're going to be consumed, like so many in the campfire here, or the very sad stories that are coming out of Maui. You can't outrun a forest fire. It moves faster than you. It moves faster than you can move in a car or a vehicle. Once it starts burning and you hear these horrible stories, there's no hope. The people that stayed back at their houses up north in the campfire, once it came, it was over. There's nothing you can do. And these snakes, how shall they escape? How many folks were engulfed in flames? Couldn't avoid it couldn't escape it. So John says, who hath warned thee? Now we've spoken at great length about warnings, haven't we? I mean, I've kind of made the overall application in this series on the eight woes that warnings left unheeded become woes, curses. And so you have the benefit of hearing warning uh, week in and week out in preaching and, and these Pharisees had that opportunity, too, but they closed their ears to it. To say that they weren't warned, you know, John is telling them, you know, who hath warned thee? The reason they weren't warned was because they did not consider themselves sinners. It wasn't because they weren't sinners, or it wasn't because John wasn't preaching against sin, nor Jesus. He, in fact, was preaching, but they weren't warned because they didn't think they were sinners. And that's the, the, that could be any one of us being warned about judgment to come, but not hearing, not taking it, not being warned because you think you're okay. They thought, you could see them, you could even see the snakes as they, as they pile out, like crawling over each other, trying to get out, trying to get away from the grass fire, but they're not going to make it. They're going to be consumed they thought they were okay. They thought they were fine. But Jesus, even in this very sermon, says in verse 15 that they are a child 
of hell. And that word child means fit for, ready, ready to burn. But not receiving warning, they have to wait until the temperature is turned up. And then it's too late. I was looking into the flood story this week, and it it struck me, maybe I didn't notice it, but there's a seven-day period. They go in the ark, Noah and his family, and the door closes by the hand of God, and then they wait. And you can imagine all the people out there, nothing happened. Seven days. And they might be there saying, ha, silly old man, cooped up in there with all those animals. We knew he was a kook. We knew he was making it up. Day two. Day three, they get bolder. Start partying. Day four. Day five. Day six. Then the windows of heaven open. And the fountains of the deep let loose. And then you can see that what happens, like these snakes, what's going to happen in a situation? People are going to start running for high ground. And the the weaker people are going to fall and be caught in the torrent. But the strong are going to keep running up the hill, up the hill, up the hill. And then what are they going to do? They're going to find a tree. And they're going to start, they're going to climb the tree. And they're going to climb it, and they're going to climb, and they're going to climb. And they're going to say, please help us, Noah. But it's over. The door is closed. You had your chance before the water started falling. You have your chance before the fire starts. But once it starts, it's over. There's no escape. That's the seriousness of the message of the gospel. It's open to you now. But when that door shuts, just like the ark, and that's what Jesus is saying here. It's like, you know, when the finger of God came to that banquet house with Belshazzar. And Belshazzar's knees are just sitting there clapping. What is that finger doing? Weighed, weighed in the balance. Found wanting. Judgment. It's over. The Persians are here. Your life, your kingdom is gone. It's done. It's been declared. That's what we see here. But then you say, well, why hasn't it happened to me, to the world? Well, that's the mercy of God. In Ecclesiastes 8.11, We have the statement, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. That's a good lesson for the magistrate, for the district attorney, for the government. Punish evil quickly, because people get bold. But God himself often waits on punishment. You think about the Canaanites... 400 years he gave them before their wickedness was full to the brim. That's what Jesus is talking about. He says, I'm going to give you another few decades. You think about the Amalekites, the time from when they um, viciously attacked the weak during the Exodus. 400 years until King Saul was commanded by God to destroy them. 
400 years in both cases. It says something about the nature of God. It says that God is merciful. He's not willing that any should perish. 400 years, these pagan cultures, why? There's really two reasons. One, so they would fill up to the full their wickedness and really make it to the point where they're past the point of no return. But on the other hand, the door was open for the Amalekites to be saved. The door was open for the Canaanites to be saved. One of them was Rahab. God's so merciful. Don't wait on, don't, don't take his mercy for granted, though the books are open, your evil deeds are being recorded. You know, it's almost impossible to get away with anything today because we're recorded everywhere we go. Our move, every move we make on the computer, that's how it is with God. Everything's being recorded. You're going to be held to account unless your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, in which case you don't have to face the day of reckoning. But what happens to evil people? Well, Romans 1 tells us at the end that God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. So sometimes we might say, why is the world so wicked? You know, I used to frequent airports every week, Monday and Friday, flew places. I haven't been in airports in a few years. Now I'm back in the airport and it seems like people are more wicked than I remember. It seems like they wear less clothing than I recall. It seems like there's more open wickedness than there was just a few years ago when I was a business traveler. And we might say, why? Why is it allowed to just keep going, to snowball? Because God's not, it's not, the cup is not full yet. And every wicked imagination of people, God even allows it to come to full bloom. And that's what he's saying. Fill ye up the cup of your fathers. Do it and prove what you really are. You say you're not like them. You say you wouldn't have killed the prophets. Oh, you're going to do it to the full. I'm going to send you my own. That's all by way of introduction. Just to introduce verse 34, wherefore, Behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. It doesn't say this, but they think they're doing the right thing. But they're not. They're wicked. They're self-deceived. Yet, Jesus is so patient and long-suffering, that he, speaking as God here, which he is, says, I'm going to send you messengers. I'm going to send you messengers to warn you, to warn this untoward generation. And these messengers are characterized as being prophets, wise men, and scribes. The parallel passage in Luke records them as prophets and apostles. So we have the account of these men in the Acts of the Apostles. They came to Jerusalem. They came to the temple. Peter and John came to the temple and warned. 
James, the, the, the pastor in Jerusalem, warned for years, three decades. Paul, at the end of the book of Acts, comes back to the temple. A great and renowned scribe in his own right. He comes back and brings some friends. And what do they do? They arrest him and send him to his eventual death. Prophet, apostle, wise man, and scribe, God sends to them because he loves them. As much as this is a prophecy of what's to happen in the Acts of the Apostles in Jerusalem and the temple, it's also a history. If we hearken back to Jeremiah 7, we see basically the exact same verse. So what Jesus is saying is at one hand a prophecy and in the other hand is a history. The history is of the first temple, the prophecy of the second, and then the hope at the end and the third. Jeremiah 7. This was the ministry of Jeremiah. Verse 25. Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I have even sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them, yet they hearkened not unto me, nor inclined their ear, but hardened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Therefore thou shalt speak all these words unto them, but they will not hearken to thee. Thou shalt also call unto them, but they will not answer thee. But thou shalt say unto them, This is a nation that obeyeth not the voice of the Lord their God, nor receiveth correction. Truth is perished and is cut off from their mouth. And then verse 29, Cut off thine hair, O Jerusalem, and cast it away, and take up a lamentation on high places, for the Lord hath rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. That was the original day of reckoning. In the first temple, Jeremiah and all his predecessors had come, rising up early in the morning and saying, This nation is transgressing, but they would not be corrected. Really, I have for you a very simple outline to finish preaching, persecution, perdition. Preaching should bring correction. Preaching should bring warning. Preaching should alert and inform you. You know what else might be in the book along with all your transgressions? All the preaching you heard. So you can't say, I didn't know. Nobody told me. Oh yeah, you were in church on such and such day. Somebody told you about hell. Somebody told you about sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. Somebody told you. You can't say, I didn't warn you. And for this generation, before the first temple, or the one that we're dealing with in our text, the second temple of Judaism, Jesus says, by the way, I'm going to send you prophets, messengers, ambassadors, educated men of high renown and regard. I'm going to send them 
to you, and they are going to warn you over and over and over until you kill them. And then you can't say, I didn't tell you. Nor can you, who have been under the sound of preaching your life, say, you weren't warned. But what's the problem? Well, the problem is at the end of verse 37. It says, and ye would not. Ye would not. I was listening to an old sermon from an old pastor this week. And he said, I can tell you men, he was speaking to pastors, people are going to do what they want to do. You can preach, you can declare, you can counsel, you can write, you can do all that you need to do, but people are going to do what they want to do. And this generation would not. What a shame. Ezekiel says, if the watchman sound not the trumpet, his blood and the blood of others is on him. But if the watchman sound the trumpet, and they heed not, and they hear not the trumpet, their blood, the sword, be on their own head. In the end, it's up to you. It's up to you. Not only did they not hear, they killed the messenger. Persecution. Here we see persecution from A to Z, if you will. Verse 35, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias. Just so happens that it's A and Z in our language. It's not just a chance. But what it is, is that the Hebrew scriptures began with Genesis and ends with 2 Chronicles. And Abel was the first murdered preacher. So he was killed by his brother Cain. And Zacharias, in the second temple, during the reign of Joash, in 2 Chronicles 24, is the final murdered preacher. Jesus is saying, have you read your Bible? I read the Bible. I know the Bible. In fact, I'm the living Bible. And I know at the beginning, Abel was slaughtered. And I know at the end of the book, Zacharias was murdered right here in the old temple, in the court. Persecution. We don't have time, and maybe you could take it as Homework to read Second Chronicles 24, but we will visit it to at least explain a bit. Um, sometimes there's a little controversy around this. This is not Zechariah, the later prophet of the exile. This is Zechariah's. Um, Zechariah's father happens to be Barachias, to make it a little more confusing. Uh, it's not an error, of course. Um, it's Zechariah is a descendant of the good priest Jehoiada. Okay, Zechariah is a descendant of the good priest Jehoiada. There's a very interesting nature, I think, in what's happening here. That is that Abel was Cain's brother. 
And I don't think Abel was, they loved each other. It was a friendly, they were, they were brothers. They both worshiped the same God in the same place, just with different sacrifices. And I'm sure Abel wasn't, Abel was earnest, but he was kind. He just told him, don't do that. God will not accept that. Don't do that. That's all he said. Do right. God will accept you, Cain. But the response, the, 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 the murder doesn't, it doesn't fit. Look at how little Zacharias you know, really said here. It, it seems so innocent, really. He says so little. And you could pick up the story in verse uh, 20 of 24. And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. I understand the son, the son of and the son of doesn't match, but there could be many explanations for that. I don't want to take the time now, but it could be that Zechariah is the grandson of Jehoiada. That's very often and means the same thing in the Old Testament. So it's, it's, it's no problem. It could be that Jehoiada has another name. That's also very common. So don't let that throw you off. This is the man that's being talked about. The son of Jehoiada. Jehoiada was a good priest, and it was a good time in Israel. And jo- Joash, the king, was a good king. Because you're thinking, I'm going to go there and see a story of one of those bad, bloody kings. Joash was a good king, and he revered Jehoiada. I mean, you could read it on your own, but when Joash came to power, he was but a boy. And Jehoiada was like a father to him. And Jehoiada coached him, and together they worked and they cleared all the high places, and they knocked down all the idolatry in the land, and they did great things for the nation. Joash was a good king. Jehoiada was a good priest. It just doesn't seem like the right place for a murder. But this, this, this descendant of Jehoiada, things started to get a little bit, they started to wane. And you can see, if you read the story, that the princes of Judah say, hey, we'd like to start bringing back our idols. And Joash doesn't do anything about it. Jehoiada is apparently dead. And things just start to creep start to creep back in a little bit, a little bit. So what does God do? The Spirit of God, we pick it up in 20, came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, which stood above the people and said unto them, Thus saith God, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord, that ye cannot prosper? Because ye have forsaken the Lord, he hath also forsaken you. He basically said, you know, things haven't been going really well around the nation in the last few years. Have you noticed? You know that God wants to prosper you. You aren't keeping his commandments anymore. You've brought back some idols. It's creeping back in, and that's why he's mad with you. Does that sound that bad? Does that sound like that, that's that offensive? God wants to bless you. But you're going to have to push back against the idols. That's all he did. That was his great crime. He's earnest. He's kind. 
He's sent by God. He's in the temple where he should be free to say something like this. Verse 22, thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but slew his son. And when he died, he said, the Lord look upon it and require it. It tells us in verse 21 how it happened. They stoned him with stones at the commandment of the king in the temple. In the temple. So what happened? I'll encourage you to read the last chapter of Second Chronicles. King Nebuchadnezzar came, and he tore the temple down, and he killed old, young, and everybody in between, and he burned everything and stole everything because God remembered what they did to the preacher, what they did when he just pleaded with them, please do right. Won't God prosper you? You're a good king. Persecution. Persecution isn't just something God allows. He has a purpose in it. His sovereign purposes accomplish two things. One, he rewards the persecutor. It's not an accident. It will happen. Reading in a book this week to preachers, came to the chapter on persecution, and it said, expect it. It's coming. If you take the office, you will be persecuted. And God has a purpose for you in it. It's to build character. Because the hireling flees. Persecution. The beatitude at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. You're in a long line in the river of blood. But the river of blood is about to meet the river of fire. Perdition. Perdition. As we look to the end of our chapter here, their fate is sealed. Jesus is going to still send them all these men, which we read about in the book of Acts. But verse 36, Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. And it's not that God wanted this. O Jerusalem, he says, Thou that killest the prophets. And he pleads with them. We'll deal with that later. But verse 38. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. You're done. You're corrupt. The second temple of Judaism is the exact same thing is going to happen that happened to the first. Perdition. Perdition, the word in the Bible, means destruction. But it's big time. Okay, It's not small. Let me read to you some about this. In A.D. 68, and I don't believe it's coincidental, but tradition tells us the pastor of the First Church of Jerusalem, James, the brother of our Lord, sometime, we don't know, and this is only tradition, between A.D. 62 and 69, James was stoned to death by the Pharisees on the order of high priest 
Ananas Ben Anas. James stayed with the church. Whoever might have been left, probably most had departed due to persecution, and James writes in his letter to them, all you that are scattered abroad. But he stayed with the stuff. He stayed with the church, however few there may have been. And the Pharisees brought the pastor and stoned him at the order of the high priest. Well, what was going on in the background at that time in AD 68, the Jews, full of themselves, sought to finally throw off Roman rule. And led by the religious zealots, and sure of the righteousness of their cause, they rebelled against Rome. They forgot about the blood of Jesus, whom they killed, the blood of James, the brother of Jesus, and all the others that they had given over to be killed or killed themselves. But God did not forget the martyrs. He did not forget the river of blood that they had made. In response to their rebellion, the Roman general Titus was dispatched with an army of 80,000 troops to quell this rebellion and lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. When the Roman general Titus conquered Jerusalem in AD 70, he killed 1.1 million Jews. 1.1 million Jews throw their bodies over the wall and slaughtered thousands more throughout Palestine. In his historical account titled Jewish War, Josephus records the following summary. The temple at Jerusalem, however, God long ago had sentenced to flames. He's referring to the first temple. But now, in the revolution, of the time periods, the fateful day had arrived. The tenth of the month, Lois, the very day on which the previous temple had been burned by the king of Babylon. On this day, one of the Roman soldiers, neither awaiting orders nor filled with horror of so dread an undertaking, but moved by some supernatural impulse, snatched a brand from the blazing timber and being hoisted up by one of his fellow soldiers, flung the fiery missile through a golden window in the temple. When the flame arose, a scream, as poignant as the tragedy, went up from the Jews, now that the object which before they had guarded so closely was going to burn. While the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priests alike, were massacred. The emperor ordered the entire city and sanctuary to be razed to the ground, except the highest towers. It really happened. Preaching, persecution always accompanies preaching. Perdition to the persecutor always comes. Well, how should we end this? Verse 37, the lament. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee. Spoken by the man, Jesus, who had said in Luke 13, 33, I will walk, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. He knew he was going to his death. He knew he was going to meet his death in Jerusalem. 
He knew what was going to happen. But he had, over the course of his ministry, as recorded in the Gospel of John, made several previous trips to the temple, in which he shouted things like, I am the bread of life. He had done his part. In his short life, he made many trips on Passover and other feast days to this very place. He says, how often? I came here time and again to tell you, to warn you, to open my arms unto you. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chicks under her wings? She would not. The greatest messenger of all time, Jesus, had made as many trips off into the temple during his own sojourn. He came like Abel to Cain and Zacharias in kindness to earnestly plead for the people to turn back to God. He offered himself as the bread of life in the very place where he stands now that he might gather them as scared little chicks under his wings. What a lament that he came to his own, his own received them not. He came to the place of worship, but he received none. He came and died, like all the prophets that came there before him and the many he sent thereafter. But he died in a different way. He died for you. He died for me. He died willingly. He knew he was going to die, how he was going to die, yet he came. He said, I must walk today, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. I'm going to my death, and I'm dying for the people that are putting me to death, and everyone else. But a little hope here. We think forward, fast forward, to the third temple, constructed during the tribulation period. He says in verse 39, For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. If you but look and live, if you but turn to him at the last moment, they'll finally, even amid all the death and the blood, and the torrent of the river of fire, a third of the nation will finally turn to him and say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Be one of those. Get your name written in the Lamb's book of life. Don't leave the book to close on you. Father, we thank you for the warnings of Scripture. May we be warned. May we apply them to ourselves, not to others, as the Pharisees, but to ourselves, and see ourselves in light of who we really are, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Help us to seek for your grace, your forgiveness, for salvation, and to say, blessed is he, the Lord Jesus, that cometh in the name of the Lord.